Very excited, a brand new series, Into the Wilderness. Uh, many of you know this, I grew up in Southern California. Not necessarily concrete jungle of New York City, but there weren't a whole lot of, there were no forests in Southern California near the coast, semi-arid desert, right? We know what that's like here, um, but at least we have the coast <laughs> down there. Uh, no forests, so, you know, no hunting, no trailblade, no nothing like that in my childhood. Um, what we had was avocado groves and orange groves. That was it. No rivers or streams to fish in, to explore. You know, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, I read those books as a young kid, and I just, why are we living? <laughs> I love the beach, but I, I wanted to be near streams and forests. And no trails to explore, but lots of bike trails cutting across vacant corner lots that were quickly lost to new housing developments. But... But having grown up as a kid in suburbia of Southern California, um, I read a lot. Right? By the end of third grade, I had read every biography of early Americans that my elementary school library had. You remember them? They're like little square books with little shaded squares with pictures of a person's life, and I just ate those up. I loved the Indians, Na Native American stories. I loved, I loved the whole thing. It was just it was amazing. Every book was amazing. It just took me to a place where I could be wild, right, and not concrete jungle. I just, it just rubbed, rubbed me wrong. I don't know. Very quickly, my dad got me reading Louis L'Amour books. If you've ever read Louis L'Amour books, right, his claim to fame is if he talks about a trail, a river, a stream, it's there. You could go find it. And I have read a couple of his books that took place in Southern California, and I went camping at a lake, backpacking with a buddy of mine in, from the book. Spent my life, early life, every school vacation camping throughout the United States, western Canada, northern Mexico. As soon as we got to camp, we did our sit-up chores. Me and Robbie, my little brother, man, we were gone. We were trailblazing, right? We were, we just, we were gone. That, that, that was adventure. So I was still able to get my trailblazing on growing up in southern California, bottom line. And you can imagine my excitement when caravans came to town to my Nazarene church in Southern California because at my age, I was a trailblazer. I love that. The girls were pathfinders. I thought that was kind of weak, but whatever. <laughs> Fourth through sixth grade were trailblazers and pathfinders. That's me and my little brother on the lower right. I'm not the one that looks like a little girl. <laughs> it was so much fun. I mean, we had badges, right? Badges and a sash and like, it was just cool. And some of them were problematic. Uh, the automobile badge, right? Diagram, your parents' automobile. Got my parents' old Plymouth Station, Plymouth Station wagon. Charting it all out. Pretty soon, I'm rolling down the driveway. Bouncing across the street. Up on the curb of the neighbor across the street. Inches from her fence. It all dawned on me. I had just charted out the diagram. You know, what a... I knew where the brake was. So at that moment, I mean, inches from my neighbor's fence, I hit the brake. And my dad came out and long, yeah, that was all that. So again, trailblazing, I mean, this was, now I bring up trailblazing for a reason, right? Throughout this series, we're going to be exploring Jesus, what, what I think would be best called a trailblazing journey into the wilderness. And if you think about what a trailblazer is, not only clears a path, but he clears the path for those that follow behind. And in his temptations, we we learn a lot. We, we find a way that we need to go, a path that we need to follow. But before we get to Jesus in the wilderness, 
We've got to start with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was sent into the wilderness to blaze a trail for Jesus' arrival. But before we get to John the Baptist, right, this is why my daughter hated asking me history questions. Well, let me back up 400 years <laughs> to a small child growing up in Southern California. Um, we really need to get, before we get to John the Baptist in the wilderness, we need to start with trailblazing in ancient Israel, right? It all builds, right? So just hang, hang with me here. This is from our reading earlier, Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is a command of God to the religious leaders and prophets of the nation of Israel who was currently residing in Babylon, right? He was saying to the religious leaders, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem, by the way, but they're in Babylon. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right, the 70 years in Babylon, the 70 years of exile was nearly over. And Yahweh was about to conduct his people again to their own country through the pathless wilderness of the Arabian Desert, exactly as he had done from Egypt to the Promised Land. And in the midst of this vision, a voice of one calling out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In this passage, Isaiah represents himself two ways, really. He represents himself as, as, as hearing a voice from heaven, right? But he also represents himself kind of as a trailblazer, right? Giving instructions to the leaders to build a suitable highway for the return of God and his people from Babylon across the Arabian Desert to the promised land, back to the promised land. Now, super important throughout our series, you're going to hear this over and over again, is this idea that in the Old Testament, wilderness is always associated with preparation and deliverance, right? If you find yourself in the wilderness and you're reading the Bible, you need to be prepared for God to prepare you and deliver you from something, right? That, that's, that's what being in the wilderness is all about. In the wilderness of Sinai, Moses prepares a whole new generation of Israelites to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and we're going to come back to that very, very momentarily, and a holy nation. And in this passage that we've just been reading, and in verse 5 in a moment, you're going to see this is going to play it out just a little bit more. The prophet Isaiah promises captive Israel that the Lord will manifest his saving presence in the wilderness when he delivers them from Babylon and leads them home to Jerusalem. Essentially, prepare a suitable highway across the Arabian desert for God to lead his people home. This is what this passage is all about, Isaiah chapter 40. And here's, here's what that will entail, you know, building this crazy highway across the Arabian desert. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be made, come level and the rugged places a plain. The whole scene is represented as a march or a return of Yahweh at the head of his people back to the land of Judea. In this day, Eastern monarchs, when they set out on a journey, they would send out a, a whole crew, sometimes like a small army, right? Depending on how big the monarch was traveling, how big of his group. And if he had an army, right, literally a small army would go out in front of them to prepare the way. Many times they were going into places with horrible, horrible roads or maybe even non-existent roads. So this small army that went out in front of them, they were preparing a way for the king to pass without embarrassment, Right? Bridges would be built so you know, he didn't have to cross streams like that. And, and just, just a whole nine yards to, get, to move that many people 
needed a small army to prepare, to prepare the way. In effect, a trail has to be blazed. In the process of preparing this highway, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's the idea, the deliverance of his people through the wilderness would be such a display of power and glory that everybody, all the nations, are going to sit up and take notice. This is the way God works in the wilderness when he transforms us. He does it in such a way always that the world notices, that the world sees, and they glorify him. Now I want to fast forward about 500 years. John the Baptist. Now all four gospels record the activities and the the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, But each, you might have noticed this, each one includes and excludes different things not only in the telling of the John the ministry, John the Baptist ministry, but the surrounding material. Some things are included, some things are excluded, timing, surrounding material, all that kind of thing. Now, I'm going to be mostly spending my time in Luke. If you've got your Bibles, it'll be in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to bounce back to Luke. Excuse me, I'm going to be in Matthew, sorry, chapter 3. A couple times I'm going to bounce back to Luke, right? So if you've got two fingers, you're, you're, you're good to go. I'm sorry if you don't. I don't know how, where that came from. Um, uh, the first place, the first place I want to start actually is not Matthew, but I'm going to start with Luke's introduction of John the Baptist. I just I kind of want to make a point here, and then I'm going to jump back to Matthew's, okay, make that point. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrach of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrach of Eturia, and Tranconius and Lysanias, tetrach of Abilene. That was all the, the, the Roman officials and now the Jewish officials during the reign During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So what Luke is doing here, Matthew, he's got other purposes, right? This isn't his purpose. Luke's building up his introduction of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist has to say. By the juxtaposition of God's kingdom breaking into the midst of the most powerful political kingdom that the world had ever seen, right? Luke is setting us up. Right? God's kingdom is going to blow away the most powerful kingdom the world has ever known and, and on top of that, the kingdom that was failing to represent God's kingdom on earth. Right? In the midst of these two kingdoms, the greatest political kingdom the world has ever seen and the kingdom that was supposed to represent God, the true king was going to break into this situation and just bust it wide open. Right? That, that, just, that, that part just blows me away. Okay, now let's go back to Matthew's really simple introduction compared to Luke. This is Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Fairly simple. In Mark's gospel, I'm not going to go to Mark's gospel, but John is preaching a baptism of repentance. Kind of a strange phrase. See, the Jewish people were familiar with ritual washings. Okay, that's not the bath that you have to take on Saturday night before church, okay, that's not a ritual cleansing, that's to get rid of the literal filth on your body. These were ritual cleansings, if you had touched a dead body, if you had been close to a gen, I mean, there were a whole bunch of rules that you had to ceremony, you weren't washing anything off, you were just symbolically, okay, ritual, right? The Jews were very familiar with ritual washings. One historian says this, the Jew washes himself every day because every day he is defiled. That, that's their mindset, But a Gentile 
was unclean, necessarily because he had never kept any part of the Jewish law. So in the Jewish eyes, all Gentiles are filthy, right? They've never bathed. That's kind of the idea, right? Of course, they bathed to get rid of the gunk, but... Therefore, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, one of the requirements was to undergo a baptism, which symbolized their cleansing from the pollution of all of their past life. There were two other things, circumcision, right? We know all about that. And they also had to provide a sacrifice for the atonement of sin because only blood covers sin. And this, this bathing covered ritual uncleanliness. It did not cover sin. The blood covered that. Just to make sure we're all clear of this baptism. So again, the Jewish people knew about baptism, but the amazing thing about John and his preaching a baptism of repentance was that he, a Jew was asking Jews to submit to that which only a Gentile was supposed to need. And obviously the Pharisees were like, what? See, water is adequate for ritual purification within their system, but not for moral or ethical purification. Right? Only repentance can handle that one. Right? We can, we can ritually wash... But water itself doesn't wash away my moral failings. That's just kind of silly on the face of it. John the Baptist recognized this and kind of pointed this out to the Jewish people. See, they, they generally had to repent only when they, what was the wording, when they allowed the rituality of everything to overtake the transformation that was supposed to take place in their hearts and that God would call them to repent. They'd messed up the system. They'd kind of gotten it flip-flop, upside down. See, some scholars conclude that exile never really ended for the Jewish people. There was a, an experiential disconnection between the promise of Abraham and the reality of being ruled by a Roman Empire, coupled with the fact that the majority of the Jews weren't even living in the promised land at this point. They had, because of the many things in Jewish history, they had just left the promised land. It's like, that, that, there's nothing but trouble for me here. So they had dispersed. Israel's exile hadn't ended, according to some scholars, simply because sin still persisted. The nation was not holy as God was holy. And the fact of the matter is, the Pharisees were the only one really doing something about this. Their idea was to take all of those 613 commandments, which the vast majority of them were for the priests, and their idea was to make everybody a priest then we would finally become the priestly nation that we were supposed to be. So that was the Pharisee. That was the rub of what the Pharisees were pushing on the people. The people were like, we're not priests. The Pharisees, well, if we want to be the kingdom of priests that God intended us to be, we all got to be doing this stuff. That was a heavy, heavy, heavy load on them. They weren't priests. Now, if Israel's exile has not ended... And it's sin that brings about exile. Right? It's fitting that John calls Israel to repent. And John does call Israel to repent because the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, Matthew uses that phrase far more often than kingdom of God. He doesn't like use the phrase God, but he does. But you'll see him, kingdom of heaven, and most of the other gospel writers, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, excuse me, same thing. Rule of God, can we just say that, the rule of God. The rule of God is dawning in both salvation and judgment. This was John telling the people, look, time's running out. 
right? You need to get ready because something's about to happen big time. You need to prepare for this. God is going to arrive in our midst in a very unexpected way, right? Jesus the Messiah, but God is going to arrive in both judgment and salvation. Listen to this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We've talked a lot about this couple definitions for coming near for this time, having drawn near and remaining near. It's one definition. Another definition, that which has completed the process of coming near is already present, not simply still on the way. Lots of opinions about this one. Scholars are kind of all over the map, kind of generalized here in three different categories, I guess, right? If you believe in a realized end times eschatology, God's kingdom, his rule, his reign has fully arrived in Jesus Christ. And we've received everything that we're going to receive. It's not going to get any better until Jesus Christ returns. There's a futuristic kind of a view. God's kingdom, his reign, and his rule won't be realized at all until Jesus returns. Right? So we haven't seen anything yet. And then there's the Wesleyan Nazarene perspective and inaugurated Right, the reign of God draws near in the ministry of Jesus through his words and deeds and remains so through his Holy Spirit-filled followers. But it won't be manifested in its fullness until Christ returns. Now but not yet is kind of the phrase that pays. Right? Now but not yet. Let me continue with verse 3. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Israel, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Kind of begs the question... Is this passage about John, the Baptist, and Jesus? Or was this passage about ancient Israel coming home from Babylonian captivity? Yes and yes. <laughs> this is the nature of prophecy, kind of a telescoping vision. Kind of look at the telescope and you're seeing things close up, but you're also seeing things very far away, but you really can't tell the distance between the two. Two things are happening. Many times... There's an immediate situation, which is in Isaiah chapter 40, Israel is going to be conducted across the Arabian desert by this incredible highway that the people are going to build. And sometimes there is a future situation, which usually isn't considered at that time of the original happening, right? During the time of Isaiah 40, nobody read this and go, oh, that's the Messiah. But it was only brought to light as future prophecy when God's spirit points it out to God's people leading up to and including that future situation. What I'm saying is when Christ arrives, when John the Baptist arrives, and even the many years leading up to it, I believe God's Spirit was telling people, hey, look back to the prophecy of Isaiah. There's something else going on there. Not only does it speak to a situation 500 years ago, but I'm telling you it's speaking to a situation right now. And God's people took note, and they began to use these passages as messianic prophecies, rightly so, because the Holy Spirit instructed them to do so. In many ways, it's kind of an after-the-fact kind of realization. I, that, that sounds ugly, but, but really, that's, that, you, you know how that happens in our own lives. We have a crisis. We have an amazing moment. In the moment, we don't recognize. We don't take the time to see God, to recognize his hand. But afterwards, we go, wow, God was here in a very real fashion. So here, I want to jump back to Luke's account very quickly, as he's the only gospel writer to include verses 4 and 5 of that prophecy of Isaiah. And it's super important that he includes this for us. 
Luke includes this. The other gospel writers don't include these two verses. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough paths, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Applied to the return of the ancient Jews, this means that all obstacles need to be removed that might impede their progress across the desert. But when it's applied to John now, right, in the New Testament era, it means that the people were to prepare for the reception of Messiah, to remove all habits and opinions and attitudes. Can we say pride? Like that's the biggie. In fact, whenever throughout the New Testament there's a verb, I don't know I'm going to try to say it, it's got like 18 letters. It's a Greek verb that, that made low always means humbled. Always means humbled. Crooked means a lawbreaker. Straight is a law keeper. And this is not allegorical interpretation, right? This is, this is not secret. It's not hidden. If you are Jewish people, these words are screaming at you, right? Every person shall be humbled, right? The, 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 the wicked will become straight. In fact, John, you're going to have to look at this yourself, Matthew chapter 11 through, I think it goes on through 14, right? The people said, well, how can we make our crooked path straight? And he tells them, right, quit stealing from people. <laughs> Be nice to people. You have to read that yourself. Luke is the only gospel writer also to highlight Jesus' promises of salvation to everybody. The other three don't mention it in, in this passage. But Luke can't help it. Right? To Luke, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the entire world. And he never stops saying that throughout his gospel. Now I want to jump back to Matthew chapter 3. John's clothes were made of camel hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and honey. And because John was obviously, right, anybody that dresses and eats this garbage had to be a prophet in the mold of the beloved Old Testament prophets, right? So the people knew this guy's a prophet or he's, he's flat nuts, right? One of the two. Well, here's what they decided. The people went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of Jordan, right? They, they looked at this guy's a prophet. We need, we haven't heard from prophets in a while, right? So they're just like, whoa. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The forgiveness of sin that John preached included two things. I want to look at those two things this morning, both confession and repentance. First of all, confession frees us from our guilt. Right? It provides an avenue in which to apologize for our wrongful actions that we've committed. And then when we seek forgiveness, because we've confessed, right, it becomes the very first step, really, that confession, and it's usually embarrassing. You're admitting that you did something stupid. God is saying, this is where I need you to start. If you don't start here, this whole thing is pointless because you really don't understand your situation. You're thinking a little more highly of yourself than you ought to. So that whole confession thing, let's just start there. Let's humble yourself. Embarrass yourself just a little bit. Pope Francis said this of confession a couple years ago. We're not Catholic, I know, but this was an incredible statement. We can receive God's forgiveness and confession because, there's the, because there the fire of God's love consumes the ashes of our sin. That, that, that phrase just, just jumped out. The embrace of the Father in confession renews us inside and purifies our heart. You've all been through that when you've confessed. After you've confessed, what a load that you've been carrying. And finally, you're, you're free to really... 
And you're free really to be heard because a lot of times if we don't confess, then the people hearing us say, please forgive me, there's a hesitancy on their part. We haven't really owned up to what we did. And without that loving renewal and purification, repentance becomes really a hated kind of a thankless chore for an unforgiving God who cuts you no slack, meaning repentance is simply not going to happen. I'll just keep confessing day in, day out. And that's what we do, just like the Jewish people. Confess, 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 but never get around to repentance, right? Changing our behavior, turning 180 degrees in an opposite direction, start walking in that direction which allows God to begin transforming us from the inside out because we are being obedient. He works through our obedience. And John could tell, right? Most people can. When confession was leading to repentance and when folks just wanted to save your own skin, you all have kids, right? You know what a confession really sounds like and what it sounds like when I don't want to be in trouble anymore. I'd like to get out of my room, so I'll say anything you want me to say, Mom. Write it down, I'll say it. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptized, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And I got this picture of a fire racing across the, the dry desert, and out in front of the fire you see all the snakes and scorpions and little animals scurrying, getting out of the way, right? This, this is the picture he's drawing. See, some folks simply weren't demonstrating the ethical and moral conduct expected of those who confessed to repenting, to changing their behavior. Oh, yes, yes. So confession and repentance were being offered to the people, and even though they thought they were already clean, John says, nope. <laughs> nope. And many did, as John instructed. They, they, they just followed the prophet. But to the religious establishment, the religious leaders, to be baptized was to admit that they weren't already clean and accepted by God, and they were not about to do that. They were good people. They attended church every Saturday. To which John replies, nope, you're not clean like you think you are. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... Right, he's pointing to the ground. God can raise up children for Abraham. See, to the Jews, Abraham was unique. <clears throat> so unique was his goodness and his favor with God that his merits, right? Like he banked up a whole bunch of merits that the Jewish people could now draw on. No merit of their own. If you were a Jew, you could draw on this incredible bank of merits that Abraham had saved up in heaven. Right, so this is the idea the Jews believed that a Jew, simply because he was a Jew and not for any other reason, he was safe in the life to come. But John the Baptist says ethnic purity is meaningless if righteous conduct isn't evident. In other words, if the religious leaders don't repent and live lives pleasing to God, he will find others. You hate to hear that from God. Like, fine, if you don't want to confess and repent, I'll find somebody else to do my work. And so even now, by rejecting or accepting Jesus at his word, salvation and judgment are already happening. Remember the phrase that pays, now but not yet. Listen to this. This is verse 10. The axe is already 
It's already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I hate it when people take this. You're going to be sent to hell if you don't produce good fruit. But it is the picture of an agricultural operation. Stuff that isn't productive, it's thrown into the fire. It's useless. Useless. John's ministry was to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Jesus when he arrived. But unconfessed sin and a lack of true repentance would prove disastrous for the Jewish people. An unconfessed sin and a lack of genuine repentance is going to prove disastrous for us as well. I'm not standing up here pointing fingers. If I was... So I want to ask you just a couple questions. If this is true, if you believe this to be true, I think that's the signal that God's calling us. <laughs> just to be honest. So I want to ask you just a couple questions. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to do anything until I'm done. I want to tell you right now I exist on this page several times. So I want to ask you, for the health of this church, for this local body, don't get defensive, just be humble. Have you ever spoken against your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, or your relatives? Have you ever spoken against your boss? your employees or your, your co-workers? Within this church body or even in the world in general, have you ever spoken against the old people or the young people? Have you ever spoken against and thinking that, oh, that's okay, we're just talking? You ever spoken against board members? Choices that they've made? The pastor's preaching? Another pastor's song selection? Another pastor's fundraising for NYC? And I'm just naming some stuff that if you wanted to complain, you could, right? I just, it, just trying to be honest here. Have you ever complained, spoken against members, other members, other attenders of this local body? I truly believe that we can keep the pastors, the board, you all in your communication with us and the board, we can do everything mechanically right. We can do everything that every book that the pastors and I read, there's formulas kind of hidden in these books and we could apply every formula that there is, and this was pointed out to me recently, the fact remains that if we have unconfessed sin and if we're not genuinely repentant, we're not going to see any results. It's not going to happen. So I just want to say in closing, 
I want to open up the altars, and I want to challenge this entire church body if any of these applied to you, or if you thought of one that I didn't say, oh, Pastor, you should have said that one because I would have stood up. Well, just go ahead and include that in your list. I want to just take a moment. Dan made this observation. The altars are open. You can pray where you're at, or you can come down as a part of the body. Is there unconfessed sin? And maybe you didn't think it was sin, but you spoke against parts of the body, and that affected, and that spread. It's like a yeast. It will work its way through the entire body. So I want to challenge us this morning. I want you to bow your heads. The altars are open. If there's unconfessed sin, or if you haven't genuinely made that 80, 180 degree turn, would you first confess to God exactly what it is? Be honest, be complete, no half-truths. And ask him for the power of his Holy Spirit to to live differently. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. You will end up confessing and confessing and confessing and confessing, but you will get nowhere. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with unconfessed sin. We do. We're humans. So, Father, we... We confess to you in any of these things I mentioned, the things I didn't mention. Father, we confess. Father, but we know confession isn't enough. John the Baptist points that out to us so clearly. If we aren't following up confession with a repentance, a genuine, true repentance, that we're kind of running in place. Father, you call us to stop running in place. You call us to move forward, to continue to bring about the realization that your kingdom has arrived. So, Father, now humble us. Any, any anything that you see pointed out that we can confess it. Father, and then you can begin to move. Your word says that unless we have that kind of a heart, then then you find it hard to forgive us and not because you're being stingy or tit for tat or anything like that, but Father, you know that if we have unrepentant hearts, then forgiveness simply can't happen. We block the forgiveness, Father, not you. You want to offer it to us always, but it has to come through humility. So, Father, humble us. Blaze a trail through our hearts this morning so that we can make room for the Messiah, the true King, and displace any other kind of crowns that we've been stacking up in our hearts. Father, make us Make us make room for the true king.
And Father, right now, I want to thank you that you've been moving in the hearts and minds of this local congregation, that even as I speak, you are hearing confessions. You are hearing hearts being made soft. And so, Father, according to your word, you will fill those opened-up hearts with your love, transform people from the inside out, because that's what love does. It just changes, turns everything inside out. So, Father, expose us to your love throughout this Lent season. But, Father, help us prepare for on Easter Sunday when it's shown in all of its glory, your love for us. Your son humbling himself and being rejected and spit on. Even though he was innocent, he went forward on our behalf. Father, thank you for what you're doing at the Richland Church of the Nazarene. That you are and you have never stopped drawing hearts to yourself in more and complete ways as we obey you more and completely. Father, I just thank you for everything that you have brought to this local body, the body of your son. We are filled with your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that everything that we do in this community, that your glory will be revealed. Many people feel that this is the wilderness, this time and this age is the wilderness, but Father, you say in the wilderness, you will reveal yourself if we'll humble ourselves. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you are faithful to do to bring us all home. Help us make straight paths, Father, in our hearts and for other people. In your son's name I pray. Amen.